It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is Dr. Claire Robb, president and CEO of Temple Faculty Physicians, part of the Temple University Health System. Temple serves over 600 physicians and makes over 550,000 ambulatory visits a year in the greater Philadelphia area. Prior to this role, Claire was Chief Clinical Officer of Temple Health, responsible for inpatient quality, efficiency, and capacity management. She started her career as a physician advisor, interfacing with payers focused on medical necessity. Claire completed her BS in economics at Rutgers University, her MD at Jefferson Medical College, and her residency at Jefferson University Hospital. She continues to work with residents and students as a hospitalist, teaching and attending at Temple Health. Dr. Claire Robb, welcome into the corner office. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's great to have you here. I know you've been super, super busy. We spoke several <laughs> months ago, but I'm glad we can finally find some time on your calendar. And we always like to start in the beginning, Claire, uh, and, you know, hear, hear a little bit about your early family life. Tell us, uh, you know, about mom and dad, where you grew up, part of the country, and, and what those years were like. Sure. So I am a uh, New Jersey girl, if, yeah. if, if you will. I'm from uh, South Jersey, which is very close to uh, Philadelphia. I grew up uh, with two sisters and uh, two, two working parents. Right. I always say that, um, you know, I love Philadelphia and South Jersey. I've been trying to, you know, go to other places, try other things, but the universe keeps bringing me back here with different <laughs> opportunities and such. So were you the oldest of the three or, or in the middle or what's, what's the pecking order? If you knew me personally, you would find it not to be a surprise that I am the oldest. <laughs> the overachiever, right? <laughs> just, just, uh, my sisters are uh, very well accomplished, but there's a, uh, something that comes with being the oldest sometimes that maybe a little bit of and you said both your parents worked were they in the medical profession Claire or what what were their uh, uh, careers and professions so um, my parents are not in the medical profession Uh, they're both uh, my dad is an accountant by trade and my mom has a marketing degree but actually um, they ran a chicken business so very entrepreneurial in spirit and they both uh, worked at the chicken company and um, you know that's where I saw a lot of 
how hard, how far hard work gets you. Yeah, cool. So that was kind of a side gig for them as they were, you know, pursuing their careers for additional income, or did they do it for fun? Or it's, no, it's... <laughs> the, opposite, the opposite. So actually, um, my grandparents on my father's side were in the Holocaust, oh. um, and they came over when they were in their early twenties yeah. um, with really farming skills mm-hmm. and. They didn't have any family because unfortunately they were murdered in the Holocaust. So mm. a bunch of refugees settled in South Jersey in this town, little kind of one horse town called Vineland. Mm. And they all started on farmings, whether it was farming, whether it was, you know, chicken, the chicken business or mm. eggs or so on and, and so forth. And they, my grandparents built themselves up from truly having nothing and no family to being very successful. And so even though my parents have those professional degrees, they, they ran the business. They continued on with it. They That's continued so cool. the business. Yeah. And did you and your sisters work in it as well? Was that kind of part of what was expected as you were growing up? Um, <laughs> it's, um, it's a very hands-on business. Yeah. We didn't, we didn't work, um, in the business, but, um, we did have what I would consider a side business. So my, my dad in particular really spent a lot of time when we were younger um, focusing on uh, teaching us entrepreneurial activities. Mm. I have this one distinct um, memory of saying, you know, dad takes me out for ice cream. And I, I say, wow, the ice cream's so good, dad. You know, I'm little. I really want to work at an ice cream store. And he's like, Claire? You want to own the ice cream. <laughs> so, I love it. Were you like five or something? Yes. And so, although I wasn't, back to your original question, although I wasn't um, managing chickens per se, yeah, he did, yeah. my sisters and I, he did encourage us because they had a lot of sort of factory workers to have a vending machine business. Right. And cool. so he bought a bunch of vending machines and we would go to like, at the time, the equivalent of like BJ's or Costco, we would buy snacks. And then sure. it was our job to, um, you know, fill the vending Refill, machines. Right, yes. Right. Try to understand what people wanted. Uh-huh. And then we had to count all the quarters and, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm on the younger side for a CEO, but even then we didn't have, um, quarter counters we had to put them in the wrappers of course so so we spent a lot of time doing that so i think in in that way we worked at the factory that's so cool so it was the vending machine at the factory basically yeah got it so it's for the for the workers and so forth there that is so cool how old were you at the time like 10 oh god that's great and your younger sisters were younger than you too so you kind of joined in i remember we made little flyers we gave them out come by (laughs) I think it was like, don't, don't fly by without buying a candy bar or something like that. Love it. Oh God. I love it. That's terrific. And, and how many years did you do that? Was that like all growing up or were there other entrepreneurial things you pursued as a kid? Yeah, I think that was, that was it. That was <laughs> were you a good student in school? Yes. Yeah. And, a, and, a, and a good rule follower. Hmm. Stayed inside the lines. Always. Uh, what were the kinds of things that, um, you know, uh, other things that you learned from mom and dad growing up? It sounds like obviously hard work, be the boss, don't be the employee. What, what other kinds of things did mom and dad share with you? Definitely hard work. Mm. I, I think, you know, when it's your own business or you're deeply committed to the business, um, you know, it takes a lot of hard work and it takes a lot of work that maybe is what you might consider outside your job description. So for example, you know, I I told you my mom in her own right is accomplished, but she worked at at, um, the chicken company and, you know, in the office. But if it meant that somebody 
didn't come in the packaging and they were short a person, she'd put on the suit and yeah. go back and, and help out and really be part of the team. Uh, similarly, if the trucks didn't come in, you know, again, my father was the CEO, but he would still drive the truck and, and the pick truck, up yeah, the deliveries. You, you just yeah. got to make it work. And I, I think I, I really embrace that now, you mm. know, you have to really be doing the work um, for people to see, yeah. you know, cause A, the work needs to get done of sure, course, sure. and B like, that's a really great way to, to bring um, leadership to a team. Yeah, absolutely. Demonstrate that you're willing to do anything. Gosh, I yes. love that. Uh, did you have time for any other outside activities? Did you, you know, pursue sports or, you know, uh, speak in the, you know, debate team or do anything like that while you're in school? Yeah, I was um, the, the captain of the soccer team and I played a lot of sports. Yeah, but... cool, cool. Did you have ambitions to go on and play to college? Did you get a chance to do that or was it more of a high school thing for you? Was, in terms of yeah, no, I can't. I can't claim that it was a high uh, a college thing. No, just in, <laughs> just in high school. And I went to a, a pretty small high school too. So right, right. it was just an activity. Other part-time jobs before you went on to college that you uh, you engaged with or did while you were growing up? Any any W two work or or mostly just uh, helping out at the at the chicken yeah, facility? Nothing that would impress you in terms of outside work. I think my parents were really focused on schoolwork yeah. and had the ability, you know, to provide for us to truly focus on on schoolwork. So you stayed in New Jersey, went to Rutgers. What yeah. was that uh, your first choice, or did you take a look at other? universities what made you choose to go there yeah i um i actually um was supposed to go to brandeis are you familiar with brandeis sure. it's, in, yeah. it's in boston it's near boston um, right. but at the time that i was supposed to go um there was some family stuff going on my mom was sick and i decided that i didn't want to be that far away home yeah. is where home is where the heart is and right you know i'll get to my destination anyway and uh, Rutgers was a good experience uh, and a good education, so I think I accomplished accomplished that. But you uh, did you study science or economics? What, what what was your degree in? So my degree is in economics. Yeah. Um, I I mean you can hear I was always kind of drawn or towards business because of the family history, sure. yeah. if you will. But um, I I knew I wanted to be a doctor. Um, I just was scared to put all my eggs sort of in that basket. I mean, it wasn't so to I hate to, I hate to say this, but I wasn't like <laughs> yes, 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 totally. I wasn't um, specifically interested in biology or organic chemistry, yeah. but I was interested in patient care, and right. so I figured, let me get this economics degree, and then I'll I'll take the prerequisites for medical school, and if I don't get in, then I will pursue economics. But get not your full Yes, yeah. but not be locked into like a biological science career, which I was less interested in. In the irony of life, you know, yes, I did get into medical school, but I am now in a position that is heavily economic. Focused. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, that's a, it was a, it was a good choice. Yeah. So, so you'd mentioned that you always knew that you wanted to be a doctor. How old were you when you first had that feeling, and what, what inspired have... you? I don't have any of those like memories or those pictures yeah. of me wearing a stethoscope when I was, you know, <laughs> playing operation. Yeah, what was that know. game? That was. <laughs> yes. I don't have any stories like that. I just, I just recall, you know, maybe the end of high school or college, just feeling like what an opportunity to connect with patients and really wanting mm. to find some meaningful work and feeling very connected to, to that idea. Because yeah. even when I, 
decided to pursue medicine, I found myself really looking with the same lens around like which specialties or what focus can I feel like I personally could be the most impactful in terms of patient care. Right. Did you, did you always kind of have a helping people mentality growing up? Was that part of it or was it the challenge of, you know, being a doctor and what that would entail? Cause you know, that's a, a a pretty awesome task in terms of accomplishing and all the, you know, yeah. It was less of an intellectual, um, pursue, you know, just in terms of getting that information and having it um, from an academic perspective. But it was definitely more around helping people and the sense that if you if you give, you get. Right. And so what a great way to have a fulfilling, a fulfilling life by giving to others, you know, really serves you too. That's awesome. And, and so senior year applied to med schools, is that, uh, yes. so no gap in between. No you went to Thomas Jefferson. Is that also in New Jersey? No, it's in, it's in the city. It's in Philadelphia. Okay. Got it. Got it. And again, your first choice, did you still kind of still need to stay close to home? What, what was the decisions around choosing Thomas Jefferson or, or is it because they chose you? Well, they chose me, but others chose me as well. Yeah. But <laughs> I just, you know, it's, it's a great institution. It's one of the oldest um, medical schools in the country. Wow. And I was excited to sort of be in Center City, which is like our downtown here in Philadelphia versus um, some of the other options. And so right. I, I chose uh, Philadelphia. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And uh, you did your internship there as well, I guess. Is that what it's called? Yes. Your internal medicine, yeah. right? So I did yes. that for about three years afterwards and then pretty much stayed in Pennsylvania, went to, to Penn uh, Medicine, right? Yes. In terms of your first job. And uh, tell us about the choice behind making that uh, career decision. So, um, you know, I, I, at that time, I really liked Philadelphia. I met my husband in medical school and sort of our applications were connected to each other. Obviously the time, the timing doesn't always work out. You know, he was applying for one thing and I was applying for another. His training was longer than my training. So that really um, affected sort of my ability to move out of Philadelphia. Sure. Um, So we were kind of grounded in Philadelphia, but definitely happy to do that. And of course, Penn is a very well-respected institution. They also have a community hospital called Pennsylvania Hospital that is within the city. And uh, my first job was there, which was really a great place to start as a new attending, a new physician. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, you're a physician when you're a resident, but you know, you're working uh, without supervision as an attending. And so to smart, to start at a smaller community hospital was a great way to sort of get my bearings and learn my trade without being sort of overwhelmed. Yeah. Total pedestrian question. How close is it to Grey's Anatomy? Uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's not as sexy as Grey's yeah. Anatomy. <laughs> a little over-dramatized. Yeah, sure. I'll, just, I'll just leave it at that. Pretty competitive? I mean, you know, what is it like once you kind of get into that, um, you know, that mode of, okay, so now you've got to prove yourself? Um. You mean like as, what, what, an, as an attendant? Yeah, as a resident and then, you know, as you're kind of earning your stripes, so to speak. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know if it's competitive. The competitive part is kind of past. Uh, okay. Competition is around getting into medical school, which is extremely competitive. And right. then getting a residency, different specialties have different levels of competition yeah. uh, to get the positions. Uh, but once you're in attending, you're fully graduated all 
not needing supervision, I think the focus is not competition. It was like, oh, well, no one's supervising me. So I better, uh, I better yeah. know what I'm doing. And yeah. if I don't know what I'm doing, I better know how to get the answer that I need, you know, whether it's where to look, who to ask. And right. so it's a different skill set than a, a competitive skill set. Got it. Got it. Well, you started as what's called a hospitalist. Is that correct? Yes. Is that your first job? And what yes. is that? Tell us about what that job is. So a hospitalist is um, somebody who manages patients only in the hospital, right? So okay. there are physicians, primary care physicians that are certified in general internal medicine that follow, you know, patients through their office, right? Patient right. comes in and, and follows them over time in a longitudinal type of way. But a hospitalist is somebody who cares for a patient while they're hospitalized during that episode of care. And is um, that pretty much an entry level type of job? Is that what most doctors do if they come into a, you know, a university health system like you did at Penn? So, um, no, it's a, it's a full, full position. Yeah. Uh, people can, you can be a hospitalist for your entire career if, wow. if you want to. Um, yeah. Certainly there are people who use it to do it for a few years and then want to become increasingly sub subspecialized, but it is definitely a career. And I would say it's probably the number one type of physician okay. that has grown over time because yeah. it's, it's a very shift based work. Um, and so people are, people are drawn to it. So it's patient care. It's essentially serving the patients while they're in the hospital during that period of time. And then they move on and yes. you serve another, someone else, right? It's not like you're, you continue to stay with them. A hundred percent. So like, yeah, you know, if a patient yeah. comes in and they have pneumonia, they get admitted to a hospital medicine service. Yeah, yeah. If they come in and they have a heart attack, they could get admitted to hospital medicine. And you, you manage them during that episode and then you connect them to back to their primary care physician right, with right. a warm handoff to the specialists yeah. that they need. Cool. Cool. One thing that's worth noting um, is that, you know, hospitalists be by the nature of working in the hospital only and managing patients in the hospital are um, very familiar with how the hospital works and yeah, hospital yeah. processes. Right. And I would say that, you know, that experience has been invaluable to me. Right. So not the knowledge, of course, the knowledge of the different disease states, I need that to do my, you know, to be a physician, but right. this like deep understanding of the interconnecting pieces in the hospital, in the hospital and how right. they work has yeah. been tr a tremendous asset to me in my day-to-day -day job. Do you get training for that, Claire, or is it just something you have to kind of learn by trial and error? Cause, cause it's gotta be quite complicated, right? There's testing and there's, you know, yeah. lots of different things that patients have to go through. So, so I think that comes with residency. That's yeah. really what the residency training is. I mean, Got certainly it. they're teaching you about, um, the medical, medical uh, pathology, but also um, really teaching you about, you know, the, the hospital process. How things work. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And are most hospitals run the same way? Yes. Yeah. Thank goodness. <laughs> yes. It'd be hard to go into a new environment. Yes. And then you became a physician advisor after that. Tell us a little bit about what that job was. Did, yeah. did you so, oversee other doctors in that role or was that a... No. Uh, I said shift work, which is why a lot of people are drawn to it. So it was like one week on, one week off. But as time went on, I found that that was a little tiring. 
Um, yeah. Working every other weekend is, is hard, um, especially at that time. I, I was just starting a family. And right. so um, there was an opportunity that was unexpected um, where a position became open um, for a physician advisor. So a physician advisor is a physician who interfaces clinically with the physicians at an insurance company to uh-huh. talk about patients that came in and whether or not the insurance company should pay for the care. So just because a patient comes in the hospital does not mean the hospital gets paid. The hospital has to prove that the patient met the medical necessity for admission. And so what I would do, I was tasked with reviewing the denials, if you will, from mm. the insurance company, discussing with the physician on the other end and saying, yeah, you know, Mr. Jones, he really, we couldn't have sent him home because he had this, this, and this, and we had to give, you know, this medication and do this. This is not something that could have been managed in an office. And then the insurance company physician and I decide whether we want to revoke the denial. Um, But what that taught me really was a couple of things that have really helped me out. First of all, how to interface with payers And also that as physicians, I think we think, you know, we do and it just gets reimbursed and that's not really the case. And then maybe third of all that, um, you know, this idea of medical necessity and levels Mm. of care, meaning, you know, where, where should people with certain medical conditions be treated, right? Should they be treated at home? Should they be treated in the office? Should they be treated in the hospital? And I think with COVID and all these things, this idea has, has been evolving. Yeah. Yeah. And I I imagine some of your business training came in helpful in those situations, right? In college, I learned about economics and microeconomics and macro and statistics. I don't know that 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 really proved to be that useful besides I have a little bit of the lingo, but I would actually say the opposite, that this experience directly interfacing with the insurance company on a day-to-day basis taught me the most about hospital finance. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, cool. And did you have management responsibility there or were you more of a, you know, individual contributor representing obviously your, 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 yeah. your, your patients at that stage? Yeah. It's a great question, but um, it was really like a task-based yeah. position. Yeah. Like this is your cue. You got to get through 30 cases today and provide an output to your, to your manager. Um, and, and that was really great way to learn. Cause again, there's no way to learn besides, doing it yourself, right. I feel, in, in a lot of ways. Um, but after a few years of doing that, I felt like I was getting marginal returns on my learning, mm. which is why I decided to jump ship. Move on, yeah. Yes. And did you have much patient interaction in that role? Yeah, Probably. I, was, I was 50% patient 50%. care and yeah. 50% physician advisor yeah. at that so, time. So less than as a hospitalist, right? Yes. Yeah, got it. So you joined Temple, and that was your first gig there, and, and you came in in another role, I guess, medical director, and, and went on to become an associate chief medical officer. Tell us a little bit about those roles and how they differed from what you did before. So um, I came to Temple to be the medical director, which was actually this very similar position to the position I had at okay. uh, Penn, which was um, physician advisor. The only difference was that in the temple design and the temple infrastructure, the physician advisor, medical director, just a different name, um, was actually part of the executive leadership team. Okay. So it wasn't, yes, I still had to do the tasks, um, but like I was invited to the meetings. 
Yeah. And so it gave me this other experience. They were like, you know, come to this and help us work on readmissions, come and help us on quality. And so in that job, even though I was still doing the queue, if you will, I was able to see, you know, how the hospital framework is laid hmm. out. Cool. And uh, people responsibilities then in that role? Yeah, I was in charge uh, at that time of a small group of uh, nurses um, who provided in- information to the insurance company pre-off yeah. and, and all of those types of things. And they, re- was, they yeah. reported into you or, or was it kind of yes. a dotted line? Yeah, no, they yeah. reported to me. But yeah. um, around the same time, because you had asked me about you know being the associate chief medical officer. Yeah. So I did the medical director job for about two years, again, in the executive suite. And I was really enjoying it. And um, at, the, at the same time, in Philadelphia, they had a big hospital system, academic hospital system that closed down because of bankruptcy, um, mm. Hahnemann Hospital, which was really taxing to the city, and I'm digressing. But anyway, um, Temple was also struggling. We're a big safety net uh, hospital. We're 87% government pay, right. and um, it was determined that we were having um, trouble sustaining any margin. We were just losing tremendous amounts each month, and, and it was determined that that was really because we were not efficiently running the hospital, Mm. um, efficiently running the hospital. So one day I uh, came to work just to do my job (laughs) and um, everybody was let go in the the entire CEO. You know, I always joke, they didn't fire me, but they weren't paying me as much. (laughs) Remember you telling me the accidental (laughs) CEO, right? Yeah, well, I mean... (laughs) That is exactly what happened. So, you know, I was left um, for whatever reason. And they were like, um, it would be really great if you could reorganize the inpatient hospital processes. And I was very much like overwhelmed because I'm the medical director and these are really high positions. And I sort of jumped a lot of ladders, uh, rings on the ladder, if you will, rungs on the ladder. So. I, I did it. I mean, I just sort of said like, okay, well, the good news is I'm a hospitalist and right. I yeah. do deeply understand how the hospital is run. And so yeah. I spent the next two years really working on, you know, um, the inpatient processes and ways that we could deliver better care more efficiently and more cost effective. And um, it was a successful a successful project. And so that Did you have some outside models that you use, Claire? I mean, gosh, it, you know, it sounds like that was quite a overwhelming uh, level of responsibility they gave you. Where did you go to kind of seek direction? I would just say like personal experience and mm-hmm. um, the fact that, you know, I had a little bit of a burning platform, not in terms of my job security, but really like this other similar hospital just closed. So I had a lot of listeners, if you will, or right. people on the team willing to change, which I think helps a lot, which I saw in COVID also, right? When the when the team is, is feeling agile or has a burning platform, unfortunately, in COVID, um, you can really make tremendous strides change. very yeah. quickly. Right. Wow. And, and did you have uh, any mentors or any advisors that you could reach out to during that period of time? Well, at that time, the the new CEO, who's the present present CEO of our health system, um, Mr. Mike Young, I would say he was an excellent mentor because yeah. even though I 
had this hospital focused mind, I was trained by physicians, right? right? So physicians right. are trained by physicians. We get very little exposure to no exposure in medical school and residency on hospital economics, hospital finance. And so um, Mike was really looking and, and saying, you know, if we put money in certain places, Claire, tell me where those places are, mm. how would it help? Which was a very different approach than the yeah. physician led organization, which was like, well, you know, you know, this patient here and we, we have to do it this way because that's how we do it. And he just had a much different approach. Tell me how much it's going to cost. And, you know, a lot of the things that we needed to do to put money towards to make the situation better, they really all served patients. So mm. they were that unique situation where you can put money towards I'll give you an example. So, you know, patients would stay in the hospital a very long time while we waited for their medications to be approved right. uh, by the insurance company. So a stay in our hospital is about $2,500 a night. The medicine wow. is maybe 60 bucks, 100 bucks, $500, but we would hold the patient in the bed waiting for the medication to come through. And he yeah. was so, sort of like, well, why don't we pay for the medication? Yeah. <laughs> My training has always been, well, you, you don't. Because that's like, the way it's done. Yeah. Right. right. And, and right. you want to hand it to the patient. But he, you know, he was like, what if you pay for it? And we send a delivery service to hand it to the patient. And I was sort of like, we can do that. Yeah. Yes. So and you're so treating. So basically, to, to, in layman's terms, you're treating them earlier. Right. Mm -hmm. Hopefully they're getting well sooner and therefore not incurring that $2,500 a night. Right. You were able to release them sooner. Is that kind of the thought process of changing your system? So that's, that's correct. I just make a caveat. It's like, these are patients who are not sick anymore that, oh, we're, that we're holding, yeah. you know, because we want to be able to do it a certain way and that, you know, but uh, it's not really necessary. And so when the patient gets the medicine, cause we paid $500 and saved $2,500, the patient gets to go home where we know yeah. they do the best. We have a reliable way to deliver the medication. And then, you know, right now our, like every hospital, our capacity is fairly overrun on the right. inpatient. And so patients that are sick that are coming to our emergency room are having to, uh, they walk out, they, they leave because yeah. the wait is so long and they need care. So why yeah. have somebody upstairs who can just as easily get care <laughs> at home? Yeah, but we, right. we never like thought of the concept. You can just, you can spend some money. Yeah, right. Gosh. Fantastic. Great. And what, what kind of an impact did that have? Um, I, I'm sure it opened up more beds earlier, right? Got people home sooner. And do you measure, or have you been able to measure the impact of that, that, that one change? In one year, we spent $750,000 and we probably uh, saved, made, however you look at it, about $40 million. Oh man, that's incredible. Wow. And, you know, during that same time, Again, this wasn't about sending sick people home. Yeah, earlier. no, I understand. This they were is, well already. Yeah, they were yeah. well. And yeah. so actually, like all of our other quality associated metrics, like hospital acquired infections, they all improved because people yeah. weren't sitting there getting whatever's floating around. You know, you know what yeah. I mean? And so it just it was just like a, a whole different way of looking at things. So I'm very appreciative, um, you know, for his mentorship. Yeah, fantastic. So, so you became president and CEO of the facility back in uh, July of last year, July of 21. And was that, um, you know, kind of a natural progression, something that you had expected to happen or, 
you know, uh, rewards for your, <laughs> the fruit of your labor, so to speak. Yeah. How, how did that kind of evolve? So I'm not the president of the hospital. I'm the president of the medical group, which okay. is, which is the physicians. Yeah. Um, but of course the physicians touch, you know, the whole hospital and sure. all yeah. of the outpatient practices. Yeah. So how did I get that job? So, um, this job that I have now is very much a outpatient job. Um, it's a lot more focused on the uh, clinics. Got it. Um, how did I get the job? I think that whatever you do, if you can prove that you can have an impact, that you're a person who can take X and make it Y, mm. um, you're always going to be a candidate for the job. And yeah. so I would say I was sort of thrown into these unexpected circumstances, running the hospital, and then this opportunity to run the medical group came up, not exactly my past experience, but um, certainly showing that you can have an impact when assigned allows people to really trust you for the position. Yeah. So more management, more leadership at this stage, any uh, patient contact at all? Tell us a little bit about what your role is now. So when I first um, started the job, I dropped down a little bit of my clinical effort seeing patients. But as soon as I got my bearings, I increased it back up. I'm about 30, 35%. Okay. Uh, clinical, which is hard because I have a, a hundred percent job, yeah, but right. it's just so important that I know what it's like to be a provider here in, in this institution. I mean, what a, what a privilege to run a medical group and be able to work in it. I always joke, you know, when I look at how we're doing, I'm like, wow, we're doing so good on this, that this is really improving. And then when I go to see patients, I'm like, wow, there's still a lot of things that we can do. <laughs> you know, not to, not to discredit anybody's hard work, but like there's a million things that we can do better. But that perspective, I think, keeps, keeps me grounded in the goal. Yeah, yeah that's awesome. And, and how big is the organization that you manage now? How many physicians and staff uh, do you support? So there's um, 600 physicians who are what we call duly employed, meaning they work for the hospital, me, and they work for uh, the dean of the Lewis Katz School of Medicine, Dr. Goldberg. We work together to, um, you know, manage, develop all the things that the physician faculty need. And of course, they have chairs and department heads um, that really do that work as well. Um, There are about 2,000 um, employees. Wow. And makes- again, the medical group is only a subset of the hospital, which is a sure. tremendous engine, two and a half billion dollars, right, uh, right. 11,000 employees. And so we're, we're a piece of that. Yeah. Any, what, what's kind of your biggest leadership challenge today? Claire? Prior role when I was running the hospital, I was very familiar with sort of everybody's, everybody's role, everybody's job. Um, and sort of their expectations. Here, when I'm running the medical group, I have to really rely on my team and my constituents to to listen, to like really understand what the needs are. Managing physicians and a physician group is much different than um, having other departments with other kinds of staff, if you will. Yeah, Um, like a medical director like you do. Yes, you have to really, really work on partnering. Mm. And so that's mm. an everyday activity. I want to mm. get here. They want to get there. How do we work together? Yeah. You know, how do we communicate? I, 
I always say if I could put a sign on my wall of, you know, what to remember each day, I would say like communicate, communicate, over communicate. <laughs> like, there is no amount. Listen, listen, listen. Yes. Yes, listen, 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 and communicate, communicate back, close the loop, which, you know, it's it's a full-time job really doing that. But I think you all see tremendous gains, and it really instills trust. Uh, So I I work on that every day. Are you involved in the hiring and firing decisions as well? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Has that been a challenge? I I, I don't think hiring and firing is a challenge specifically, but... um, what is a challenge is balancing wellness and burnout mm. with the needs of the yeah. institution and the needs of the patients even. Right. Um, right. You know, access is really a critical issue, but it, it really expanding access pulls on sometimes the same resources yeah. um, that are already feeling tired, not just physicians. Really, everyone's feeling tired and burned out. And so right. how do you balance serving patients without sort of overrunning the staff and the faculty. It's an everyday kind of challenge. Yeah. When you're, when you're making your hiring decisions, do you hire more to culture or to qualifications or, you know, how do you balance the two? Here at Temple, we have a very specific culture. Um, I think our culture, if I had to sum it up, would be grit, Mm. you know, just kind of working hard, getting it done you know, um, focusing on patient care and good quality within the constraints. And there are constraints, right? Yeah. Um, And so I try to, when I am hiring people, I want to have that kind of person, a person who's resilient and dedicated to our mission to serve uh, the underserved. How do you get at that? What kind of questions do you ask? I like to steer away from, you know, tell me about your leadership style yeah. or this or that. I, I like to move towards, let me give you a, a situation. What would you do? That mm. really helps me understand how that person thinks. Right. And then I would say, you know, we're not the only institution um, that requires grit. There's there's certainly others. And so I like to have an understanding from the candidate where they've worked, what their experiences mm. have been to make sure that this is not, you know, totally different than, yeah. than where, where they've been and that they understand um, some of the expectations and, of course, the joys that, that come with it and, and sure. the validation. Sure. And are you growing now? I mean, I know you kind of went through that Friday afternoon at Massacre or whatever day it was <laughs> when everyone was fired. And, yeah. and are you back in rebuilding mode? And is that continuing to you know grow the organization? Yeah. So, I mean, since that time... Um, with a new uh, CEO, Mr. Mr. Young, we have yeah. really turned the organization around. He's really um, been very um, specific about putting leaders where they need to be to grow. And uh, yeah. we've, we've been very successful the past few years, which is, yeah. oh, it feels awesome. good. Awesome. Terrific. Well, Claire, you've been very, very generous with your time. We, we've always asked one last question, though, of all our guests. And and that's, you know, what kind of career and life advice would you give someone that, that you know, maybe does or doesn't have their eye in the corner office, but, you know, is, is specifically growing up in the medical profession and, and thinking about, you know, leadership responsibilities? What, what would you say to them if they were, you know, someone who had that in mind for a longer term? Can I give two pieces of advice? Absolutely. No, no extra charge, right? Okay. No so extra charge. <laughs> I, I would say the first is 
always be your authentic self. I think, especially as women, people will try to redirect with good intentions. You know, don't laugh this way. Don't say it that way. And I think if you leave with your authentic self, that people will see that and they'll trust you. And there's no substitute for that. The second piece of advice I would say is, which I've heard other people say is work for the job you're in not necessarily the job you want. And I have seen in my own experience that whatever you're tasked with, big or small, in your present job, if you can impact it and you're successful at that, people see that. And then when the next opportunity comes up, they said, oh, well, you know, Claire was able to do this. I bet she could do this. And I think that's the best way to climb up the ladder, if you will. So focus on your task at hand and be really good at it. Awesome. Love it. Dr. Claire Robb, president and CEO of Temple Faculty Physicians at Temple University Health System. Thank you so much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brandt, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.